that the Interior Department back office systems running grants, real property, finance, and acquisition are getting more than just a burst of new technology. The office overseeing all that new IT is getting a new name. The Business Integration Office will soon become the Business Integration and Innovation Office. They call it BI Squared. Andrea Brandon, Interior's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Budget, Finance, Grants, and Acquisition, tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about why both the name change and the new technology will accelerate Interior's digital transformation. That's what my bio office, or soon to be the BI Squared office, has been really putting RPA First and foremost, working through all of the lines of business that uh, fall under my purview and across DOI because we work with the different bureaus. And we have six bots already that are active, that are up and running, and two that are in development. And I think our most famous bot is Bob, the closer. So we name all of our bots. And Bob, the closer, actually closes out acquisition contracts. And so that one's getting the most bang for the buck. So we're really moving forward with all of our innovations, starting with RPA. You're going to have to have Bob meet Dora. Have you heard of Dora? <laughs> I have Dora is the Dora. acquisition closeout that the Army developed. Oh, so Bob and Dora could get married and that have little, little baby bots. Right? Little baby bots. I love it. Let me ask you a little bit about some of those bots. You mentioned Bob with acquisition closeout. What are some of the other ones, other areas that, that they are so touching upon? So we have one called the Ozdebot, and that one is uh, grabbing all of our, our Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization data from across all of our bureaus and across the department, our acquisitions, offices, and so forth, because we have goaling uh, metrics that we have to keep up with that are given to us from the Small Business Administration. Each federal agency has them. And so we keep up every day with our, you know, with the statuses of our small business contracts, um, the different areas, like whether it's women-owned business or veteran-owned business or et cetera. And so that, that bot pulls that information automatically for us, and it also does the dashboards and so forth, and, and it keeps us up to speed on a daily basis. So it's, it's working out really well. No more manual processes with that. And the, the goal there is so you as the assist, deputy assistant secretary or your boss's 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 boss can say, how are we doing with our small business exactly. goals? And you can pull it up and say, well, as of today at 3.30, exactly. boom, this is how we're doing. Yes. And, and that also helps you drive decisions and helps you make other things. Are you far enough along that it's already having that impact? Yes. Or? Yes, we are. So one of the things we know because of the bot is, unfortunately, how many small businesses we've lost over the last few years. And so, you know, we have that data handy. We have the dashboards because the bot is pulling that information. And so now we're starting an initiative to try to bring back the small businesses and try to get that that cadre of businesses, of small businesses back into DOI. So, yes, it's very helpful with decision-making um, and also with letting us know how, you know, the goaling metrics, it looks like each day, you know, we're like, oh, we're succeeding. But the more contracts we let over the as the year goes on, if you don't make enough small business, then those numbers change right. if you don't do enough of that. So that is giving us the information. The bot is giving us that information. We also have another bot called the Appy Bot that's actually doing the the administrative changes to acquisitions automatically. So basically, if we need to change any terms and conditions on a contract or if we need to change any of the administrative requirements or anything on a, on a, a contract vehicle, the bot actually does the work for us. And then it actually passes a draft of it over to the contracting official and they make the final decision. So there's that whole call of what can be done by a bot versus where we still need human intervention. I like to call that the inherently human versus non-inherently human decisions that we need to make. But yeah, so we have a bot doing that. So we have, like I said, the bot brigade is building up and they'll be marching on through DOI. We're loving it. (laughs) 
Now, the back office areas, finance, grants, acquisition, they're all made for this type of technology. A lot of, quote unquote, low value work, and then you can move people to out of that low value work. How are you measuring the impact? Are you measuring by cost savings, by hours taken to, to do a certain yes. issue? Did, complete a certain task, how are you measuring kind of the impact? Like, let's take Bob the Closer, for instance. It's, we've already closed 7,441 contracts. So before we were having an issue because the contract closeout process had to be done by the same group of individuals that had to award the contracts. And all of the awards have to be made before September 30th. So, we, of course, our priority is getting the money out the door. Unfortunately, closing it back out and, you know, maybe de-obligating the money and getting the undelivered order off of the books took a secondary, took a back seat to getting the money out the door. So now we have the bot that's closing it out. And so we know exactly how many contracts have been closed out, and it takes 104 seconds per contract to close it out. So we've been tracking all of these different metrics and on the other bots, we're looking at cost savings. And we know in some of them, we won't see a cost savings for a couple of years because, you know, it takes time. We have to pay money to get the bot and to build the bot. And so we're looking on the return on the investment for that. But, yeah, we have all the various metrics. And I can honestly say people are excited about this and they don't feel like they are being replaced by the bot. They're very excited. They're coming up with more use cases. And, our, uh, like I said, our bot brigade is, is growing, <laughs> leaps and bounds. I think what people like is not to have to shuffle the paper and do the boring, <laughs> mundane, repetitive type yeah. of things. Is, is that also the feedback you're getting? Definitely. It's like, if I never have to close out another contract, that won't be soon enough. Exactly. You're getting that kind of feedback. Yes. And on the financial assistance side, grant side, they are asking us, how soon can you get it on, the, on that side? You know, so you're like, you got it for contracts, but when can you get it for the grants? So we're working on that now, actually. I was going to ask that question because you mentioned two are in the works. What's your list like in terms of 10 others, 15 others, 100 others that people want? Hey, we could use a bot for this and this and this. Do you have a long list? And how do, so, you, how do you prioritize that list? Yeah, so we actually have two that are in development currently, but we have a very long list. And so what we ended up having to do is we had to put together a DOI council on RPA because we have them not only for the businesses that are under my purview, but we have them across other parts of for HR, for instance. That's not under my purview, but the HR people want RPA as well. And then we have, I think you called, you uh, asked me about the Interior Business Center. They have bots as well. And so we need to prioritize, first of all, how much uh, funding can go to where, so which bots are going to be prioritized in the department. And then the other thing is shared learned experiences across the department and maybe even shared vehicles. You know, why make 100 different contracts across the entire interior when we can shorten that and use the same contract vehicle or several contract vehicles? And like I said, look at lessons learned across, you know, the department. If we've already implemented six bots, what did that take to get them up and running what types of challenges did we run across? How do we fix those challenges, et cetera? So we have a council now that we um, have put together. We've met one time, and so we will continue to build that out and to look at our, our RPA roadmap across the department, if you will. Andrea Brandon, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Budget, Finance, Grants, and Acquisition for the Interior Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher 
Education Administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about 
ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. 
Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.